Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great kindness, for your strength, for your love, which you give to us freely. Thank you, Father, that you are with us in this very moment. Whatever it is we're bringing with us tonight, whether it's things to rejoice over or things that are a struggle, we bring them before you because you've told us that we can come. And so, Father, we come to you, to your throne of grace, to find your mercy and grace in our time of need. And we pray, Father, as we continue in an attitude of worship, as we look into your word, that you, God, would be our guide, that you would be our teacher, and that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week... We focused our attention on David's two attempts to move the Ark of God into Jerusalem. Uh, If you recall, the first attempt failed miserably as poor Uzzah find out that um, you're not supposed to touch the Ark. Second attempt went much more swimmingly uh, with, uh, what number did we come to? Somewhere around 1,700 sacrifices uh, dancing and singing and then there was food and all this stuff until David got home and David's wife looked at him and said oh how the king of Israel has portrayed himself today if you recall David's wife was British last week she's, she's British still and David looked at her and said yeah well God chose me instead of your father Who's dead, by the way? Okay, he didn't say that, but he might as well have. And I did this before the Lord, and I'll become even more undignified. And so we jumped into talking about how worship is truly to be a lifestyle, not just an act. Our whole lives are meant to worship God. Today, uh, and we're not actually given the amount of time that has passed, But some amount of time has passed, and we're going to see God's incredible promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David has a desire to build a house for God. Right? He goes, Look, Nathan, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what they were doing, but they were sitting around. Nathan happened to be there. And David goes, I got me a really nice house. And the ark is sitting in a tent. I think we should build God a house. And Nathan goes, well, Sounds like a pretty good idea. You should do that. I'm sure God's going to be in the, involved in that, right? But just because something is a good idea does not mean that it is God's idea. This is why it is so vital that we seek the Lord in his word and in prayer and we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because we may have what seems like a really good idea. But if it's not what God wants, or it's not the way God wants, or in the timing God wants, It doesn't matter how good of an idea it is. Verse 4. 
It happened that night. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan gets home, he goes to sleep, and God's like, Yes, Lord, I didn't tell anybody to build me a house. So this is what you need to go back and say to David. And the gist of the message is this, that David is not going to build God a house, but God is going to build David a house. So God points out that throughout all the time since he brought them out of Egypt, he'd never dwelt in a house, and he never told any of those who he had commanded to shepherd Israel. Now this would include Moses, uh, the judges, uh, Eli, Samuel, Saul, up to this point, none of them had ever been commanded to build God a house. And so he tells David, you're not going to build me one either. Now, in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 28.3, we read this, But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. So that's actually the reason that David was not allowed to build the house of God. Well, because um, he killed a lot of folk. So next, God points out that he had elevated David from a shepherd to the king of Israel, how he had brought victory over all of David's enemy. Additionally, he points out that he will appoint a permanent place for the Israelites. And I want to make a quick comparison to the fact that God has done the same for us. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, To him who loved us, 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that is not something I think we think about very often. I mean, did you wake up this morning? And maybe if you're anything like me, you reminded yourself today that you are a child of the one true king. I often remind myself of that, remind myself that I'm saved. Um, I often remind myself of that when I'm about to lose my temper. No, Jason, this will not honor God. Hold on to your paddle, don't throw it. Besides the fact that pickleball paddles are expensive. But I don't often think of myself in God's kingdom as a king and priest. Do you? I mean, just being honest, it's not a, a, a title that I normally, or it's not on my business card. You know, uh, Dr. Jason Starnary, king and priest <laughs> to God Almighty, right? Because I couldn't sound any more arrogant. I already put doctor on my card. Um, but he has. He has taken us from the kingdom of darkness. He has taken us from the sin. As uh, what David actually said in one of the Psalms, he has pulled us out of the miry pit and set our feet upon the rock. He has taken us from that and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. I love that. Because I don't think that we think about it often enough. And on top of that, when he talks about appointing a place from which Israel would not move, God has appointed such a place for us as well. It's not here. As much as I want to, to spend, you know, the majority of the rest of my life in Gunnison, I want to go on vacation every now and then, but I want to spend the majority of the rest of my life right here. I love Gunnison. It's a beautiful town. I love the people here. I, I love the waffles at Backcountry Cafe. Um, so much to love about Gunnison. But this is still only temporary because this is not my home. I am a pilgrim. I am a sojourner. I am on a journey that is leading me towards eternity. And that is truly my home. So just some really cool comparisons, I think. God then promises to build David a house. Now the word for house here means dynasty through his descendants. Dynasty through his descendants. And when David dies, God promises multiple things. First, David uh, under David's son, God will establish the kingdom. And the nation of Israel truly reached its zenith under Solomon. Their borders expanded to the farthest they had ever expanded. The, the wealth and, and peace that was experienced under Solomon's kingdom was never matched. It wasn't matched by Saul or David and never matched by anybody who came after Solomon. The fame of Solomon spread throughout the world. I mean, there was just nothing like the kingdom of Israel under Solomon. The son will build a house for God. And this is the first promise of David's throne being established forever. And we know, and as we get farther ahead, we'll find out that Solomon indeed does finish the building of the house, uh, of the temple. 
Then he says that he will be a father to this son and that this son will be a son to God, the father. And he promises David that if the son commits any iniquity, he will chastise him. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 reminds us, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son he receives. God will chasten us, those who he loves, in order to correct us. It's very different from God's punishment of the wicked. Uh, you know, I have children, and all of them, all of them are here, which is not doesn't always happen. But you can ask any one of them, except for Hannah. She's probably the only one that doesn't remember. Um, they've all gotten a, a pat on the bottom once or twice. Not because I didn't love them, but because they had done something wrong and needed correction. And I didn't love them any less afterwards. They didn't like me very much for a little while, but they got over it. Um, and it's the same with us. Yeah, God's going God's to deal with us as his children. And we shouldn't despise that because that's what he does for the ones he loves. But the punishment of God, the judgment of God that will come on those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, well, that's very, very different. And then he promises that his mercy will not depart from David's son as it did from Saul. And these first four promises were all fulfilled in Solomon. Now, the next promise is that David's throne would be established forever. This promise is a promise that the Messiah will come through David's line. This promise is repeated in multiple places, uh, like in the books of 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. So the question becomes, how do we know that God promising to establish David's throne forever refers to Jesus? I'm really glad you asked. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, right? We love to read this verse around Christmas, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, it's beautiful, right? But we always forget verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's one place. I got a few more. When Gabriel spoke to Mary, when he announced the birth of Je that she was going to be pregnant with Jesus in Luke 1, 32 and 33, uh, Gabriel said to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. No king of Israel ever, ever executed justice and righteousness throughout the whole earth. And Israel will dwell safely. Have we seen that happen? Not yet. And now this 
is the name by which he will be called Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is literally the Lord, our righteousness. Zechariah 3.9, for behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch, who we already know speaks of a descendant of David, according to Jeremiah. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Who removed the iniquity of the land in one day? Only Jesus. And his death on the cross. Um, I could keep going. I've got more. I'm going to stop for there. <laughs> right? This is speaking about Jesus. Now you, we're going to see David's response to this in just a moment. But you have to imagine David understood, at least to some degree, what this meant. And we're going to see that in verses 18 to 24. King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, And according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds? For your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. So David praises God for this promise to him. We see his humility, his adoration. It's a beautiful picture of how God doesn't pick the qualified. But he chooses us instead. And this is because God wants the glory for the work that he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Why has God chosen the weak things of the world? Why has God not chosen the mighty? Why has God chosen the things that are despised? Why has God chosen the things that are foolish? In other words, why has he chosen you and I? It's a good question, right? So that he who glories will glory in the Lord. The whole point is, That when people see the work of God in our lives, they should say, only God could do that. Now, on several occasions, David points out that there is only one God. This is very important for us to understand, um, because there's a lot of people who think there are others, especially back in that day. But he talks about Israel being his people forever. So I'm going to go down a slight rabbit trail, then we'll get back on task, I promise. This is one among many places that show us that God has a plan for Israel. He says there at the end of verse 24, that you, Lord, oh sorry, he says, or actually all of verse 24, you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. The fact that God has a plan for the nation of Israel is laid out even more clearly in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. You can make that your homework if you would like. Uh, Or you can go back and find the Romans study on our website and, and listen to the study on those three chapters because God makes it abundantly clear that he is not finished with Israel. Now, if anybody tells you that God is certainly finished with Israel, all you got to do is pull out a map and show them that Israel exists today. If God was done with Israel, he would not have brought them back into the land. There would have been no point in doing so. Those who try to deny the rapture of the church and try to put the church in the tribulation can only do so by getting rid of Israel's future and then having the church replace Israel. This is known as replacement theology, right? They got real fancy with that name, right? We have all these great theological words, like, you know, the the, the study of salvation is soteriology. But but the, the line of theology where the church replaces Israel, they just call it replacement theology. They couldn't have been a little more original on that one. Well, it's all the more reason not to believe it. Because it's not true. The church has not replaced Israel. There is nothing in Scripture that says the church has replaced Israel. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates or gives an inkling or a suggestion that the church replaces Israel. Instead, God has a plan for the church in regards to the tribulation, and that is to get us out of here before it happens. And then we come back with Jesus at the end to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And God has a purpose for the nation of Israel in the tribulation. And that is to preserve the nation through it 
to bring the remnant of Israel to salvation in Christ. And again, this is talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So that Israel has a future. The church will not go through the tribulation, but will be raptured beforehand. And I told you it was going to be a rabbit's trail, didn't I? But the idea that God calls Israel his people forever can teach us that because did God change his mind? Did God decide later on that Israel would no longer be his people? Nope. Verse 25. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you, to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. So essentially, these four verses, David goes, All right, Lord, you said all this stuff. Your word is true. Please let it happen. Right? He goes, I, I believe you. He essentially asks God to do what he said he would do. Now, I think it is always beneficial for us to pray according to the word of God. Because when we pray God's word, then we can know that we are praying according to God's will. And when we pray according to God's will, he has given us this promise in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. I love that. Now, some people really like this idea that, well, I can pray and God has to answer. The only time we have a promise that God will hear and respond to our prayer is when we pray according to his will. Now, if we're praying not according to his will, and we're listening, then typically he's going to change us. But I can promise that if you pray his word, you're always going to be praying according to his will. I like that. Chapter 8. We're going to go through chapter 8 like a snow plow through snow. You ready? After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma from the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, forcing them to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, 
As he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. David put garrisons in Syria of the Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer. David, king David took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the armor of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold and, gold, gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Syria, Moab, and the people of Ammon, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name. When he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt, he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So essentially, these 14 verses just outline a bunch more of David's military conquest. So we, we see this city, Methagama. The city is Gath, which means David had already really conquered the Philistines um, because this was a walled city. It was a capital of the Philistines. It was kind of their last stronghold. Um, it's also where, uh, if I remember correctly, was it Gath or Ashkelon? Where did David go when he ran from Saul? Anybody? See what happens when I don't put stuff in my notes. Achish, king of Gath, 1 Samuel 27, 2. Yeah, so this was also the place that David had gone to hide from Saul. Uh, so this was deep within Philistine land. Uh, so he pretty much took care of the Philistines. Now, um, we see this thing with the, with the Moabites, right? With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, to be kept alive. So this, this is the picture that you get, right? He lines all the Moabites up and kind of numbers them off, essentially. One, two, three. One, two, three. With however many thousands of these soldiers there were. And he goes, okay, one's over here. Two's over here. And he kills all of them. And at that point, the threes are freaking out. And he goes, you get to stay alive, but you will serve me. You got it. Right? That's what took place. So the question is, why was David so brutal with the Moabites here? Well, there is a bit of Hebrew history uh, that says that the king of Moab had killed David's parents when he became king. We have not seen David's parents mentioned since he hid them when he was running from Saul. So according to Hebrew history, um, when David became king, uh, the king of Moab killed his parents, and David has not gotten over that yet. 
Uh, we know from First Chronicles that David gathered much of the material uh, that he was taking here. It said he dedicated it to the Lord, but he gathered much of that material for the building of the temple, and Solomon used uh, what David had gathered for the building. And we see this phrase twice, that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. I, it's just, I think it's a beautiful statement. Now in verse 15 through 18, we get four more verses that we can't live without. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joad, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Again, a verse you're not going to often see cross-stitched on a pillow. Basically, we get the names of David's administration. Now, what's really cool about this, and I will just point this out, is that being this specific is either really smart or really dumb. Now, we know it's God who inspired the word, so we know it's really smart. It would be really dumb if you were making it up. If you were making all of this up, you wouldn't name all these people. Because in naming them, you could prove or disprove their existence. It's just like for many years, uh, people denied the existence of King David, said that he was a character made up by the, by the Bible, the authors of the biblical books about him. Well, guess what? Did you know they found a tablet in Israel, or near Israel, I don't think it was actually in Israel, but near Israel, that named David as king of Israel during the time period when the Bible says David was king of Israel? Do you know they found other archaeological evidence that supports some of the names we just read? So we have it in our Bible they have found these names carved into stone and preserved for, I mean, from this point in time, 2,500 years, give or take. Is that right? No, that's too long. No, it's not too long. We're 2,000 years after the time of Christ. This was at least seven, 800 years. Yeah, so yeah, 25, 2,700 years those things preserved, showing us that what we have in front of us, written in the word of God, is accurate. At this point, David's kingdom has been firmly established and is reaching the zenith of its power, right? The kingdom under David is reaching the zenith of its power, not what it will be under Solomon, but about as great as it's going to get under David. And all because of the wonderful work of God in David's life. Now next week, we'll see David fulfill his promise to Jonathan and Saul by caring for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Until then, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I will always be grateful, Lord, that you have chosen the foolish things of the world. Because I know you chose me. And that you've chosen the weak things of the world because I know, apart from you, I'm nothing. And I'm grateful for that, Father. Because it means I can simply give you all the glory for everything in my life. And I do. And we do. 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church, we give you glory. I pray, Father, that you would be with the rest of our evening, that you would be with the rest of our week. I just pray for your hand of grace to be upon us and that you would indeed be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.